And so as they dismiss, let me also invite those who would be listening to this service outside of these walls uh, to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter number 5, if you would join us there. You're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message. And I have a title and a subtitle I'll share with you just so that you can uh, kind of wrap your mind around where we're going. I've entitled this message, The Disciple in Community. The subtitle that I've chosen is How Jesus is Expounding the Spirit of the Law in Light of Its Letter. The letter of the law, Paul tells us, kills, but the Spirit is what God's after. It's that inward change. You're in Matthew chapter number 5. I'll draw your attention to one verse as we begin, and then I have quite a, a task before me to get through twenty-one, uh, verse 21 to, to verse 48. So uh, I think we can do it if I keep my head uh, where I'm supposed to be and my heart with the Lord. Uh, we'll pray that whatever said here would be what He wants anyway. Amen? And so Matthew chapter 5, look with me at verse number 48. We read these words. Jesus telling his disciples after expounding the spirit of the law in light of its letter, he tells his disciples, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now Lord, I pray that you would help us to internalize your word in a way that would transform our lives. Paul has instructed us that if we would present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, that is, sanctified and set apart from the world, if we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto you, uh, Lord, then we could prove your will. We can know the direction that you have for our life. We can test your plans for us. Thoughts that you have that would lead us toward a perfect end. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to find the transformation in our mind that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Take your word, Lord, and do your work. Let nothing hinder and may your word have free course. And Lord, my simple prayer would be, let each one that hears this message grow in some way, shape, form, or fashion in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something I have to commit to your keeping, Lord. And if you accomplish that, I know you will. Then I will know that I've done my humble part to put your word forward. Do what I can't do, Lord, and give unction on these words. And burn them in our heart that we might not sin against you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I was studying for this message, I came across a, a story about a Kansas uh, meeting. It was probably a community meeting, something along those lines. And the, the story was telling, was recalling uh, one of the opening prayers that was made in that assembly for that time. Now, I have no idea what was going on in Kansas, but I think this prayer is revealing that something was amiss somewhere, and they were asking God, in essence, for wisdom. But listen to this. I thought, you know, that might sound good in the prayer caucus here. Maybe I'll take that and, and rewrite it and pray it one, if, I, if I get another chance to open another chamber. I don't know if I will after the one I prayed last session. But this is what a person prayed in Kansas for their opening prayer for that civil meeting. They said, Omniscient Father, help us to know who's telling the truth. One side tells us one thing, and the other just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, we'd like to know that too. 
And if each side is telling half the truth, give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. No joke, that's word for word. The, the prayer, amazing. Well, you know, maybe that, that was a necessary prayer for what they were going through at that time. Nevertheless, that was a, a desperate expression of cynicism, nonetheless. And so as you continue this thought, you know, the truth, the permeation of truth or the lack thereof of truth extends to a lot of literature in our day as well. And I mean, we could take this all the way to the TV and radio and we're in a mess. But University of Chicago professor, professor Mortimer Adler, if, uh, if you know that name, you know that he uh, was part of the Encyclopedia Britannica and also was editor for the Great Books of the Western World series. Maybe some of you bought those as they came through selling them years ago. I do have uh, the, the, the Great Books collection. But uh, he, he wrote a book called How to Read a Book. Mortimer Adler did. And some of you might have heard this before. But in there, in his classic How to Read a Book, he says this. The question, is it true, can be asked of anything we read. It is applicable to every kind of writing. Later on, he went on to say, No higher commendation can be given any work of the human mind than to praise it for the measure of truth it has achieved. I think we can learn something from Mortimer Adler. But, he goes on to say, By the same token, to criticize it adversely for its failure in this respect is to treat it with the seriousness that a serious work deserves. In other words, have discernment in what you're reading and what you're allowing in your mind. Yet strangely, in recent years, for the first time in Western history, there's a dwindling concern with this criterion of excellence. Hello? <laughs> I think he was a, prophesying a little bit there about Google and Facebook and, and all the plethora of knowledge that we have that, oh, you can believe everything you read on the internet, right? Strangely enough, he was saying in his time, the first, first time in Western history, dwindling concern with this criteria of excellence. Books win the plaudits of the critics and gain widespread popular attention almost to the extent that they flout the truth. The more outrageously they do so, the better. As we approach Jesus' words here, as he continues preaching to his disciples and teaching them about what it is to follow him, I stand amazed. The more I get into this sermon on the mount, the so-called sermon on the mount, I just, I just marvel at the masterful way that our Savior communicated such truth here. Why does my mind marvel that way? Why does my heart feel stirred to think that Jesus, all these years ago, would write something and, and have, well, he wouldn't write it. He gave it, and it was written down by Matthew later uh, by the movie of the Holy Spirit. We understand that. But all those years ago, for him to say these things and then it be recorded and preserved for me to read and study in such a way, how, how has it impacted my mind? Think about how he began his sermon. We studied for some weeks now his introduction and where he's going with his main thrust. 
if you study sermons and you know anything about homiletics, you know they always tell you you've got to have your three points in a poem and it's got to be alliterated and you've got to illustrate all this and tell all these stories here. I'll tell you, I don't know why you keep putting up with me. If you're just here for the homiletics, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but, but I do try, okay? But with the Lord's grace, His Word is what takes preeminence. And that's, that's always been my heart. As Jesus began, He got their attention with an opener of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. As I studied verses 21 to 48, I saw His introduction come to light in everything that he said there about expounding the law. You see, what he was doing in his introduction wasn't just getting our attention. He was preparing us for what he was going to give us in the body of this message. So he introduced the sermon with the Beatitudes. And then he goes on to say things about what true righteousness is and how his disciples need to look different, smell different, act different, uh, talk different than the world, and to let their light shine. And there's, there could be trouble because they do that, because they're going to be abrasive to the world. They're going to hold back corruption if they're true disciples in the sense of living out the Beatitudes, and they actually get it. They're going to make a difference in the world. Now he goes into really what I would see as the major body of his sermon. And I don't know, maybe you would take a different, uh, a different uh, survey of it. But when I read chapter 5 and I read chapter 6, and I read chapter 7, I almost do see three points there from Jesus. Three major things. Let me give those to you because it will help you understand where we're going. As he's begun and given us his main thoughts and the main challenge, gotten our attention, and we can't, we can't pull away from what he's saying now. He goes into how a disciple who's salt and light, the way he should be, he or she should be, how that disciple needs to operate within his community, his or her community. That is, with others, how we treat our fellow man, all of that. Now, let's not get the cart before the horse because we have to point out, Jesus has already dealt with the inside issue. He's already dealt that these things need to come from the heart, not the external in. It's from the inside out, not from the outside in. We get that. So how should a disciple operate? How should he walk among those in his community? And through these verses, verses 21 to 48, he's going to go to the law. And when I say that, I mean he's going to particularly Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he's masterful at how he incorporates his knowledge. Now think about it. This is the safe, This is Jesus Christ. And we already know his view of the Old Testament and how precious it was to him and how he has called it the very words of God. And he said every jot, every tittle would be fulfilled down to every letter and the smallest part of the letter. He's already affirmed that to us. So he goes to that word of God and he goes to the scriptures and he says, let's talk about some things. You've heard that the ancients said this. Now, that could go all the way back to Moses, yes, but I think it also could stem to the, the tradition of the scribes in his day. Because there are some things that they were uh, adding to, or if you will, interpreting from what was explicit, and implying that the law meant, this is how you should brush your teeth, this is how you should comb your hair, this is how you should do all this, and so we went over that before. So as Jesus 
confronts this. He's already laid down the, the principle. He's not come to destroy. He's come to fulfill. So he's expounding, giving us a better understanding. Because by the time Jesus is teaching this, people have become so mechanical and externally oriented that they think that they can do everything on the outside just right and be okay with God. <laughs> Jesus is not so. You've heard that it was said by them the whole time. And he's going right to the law. Now the law is good. Paul establishes that with Timothy. And those are his very words to Timothy. The law is good. But what he was having uh, some issues with, what Timothy was having some issues with in Ephesus were that teachers, Judaizers really, were getting into the law and they were spending all their time with these fables. By the way, do you know the difference between a fable and a fairy tale? I hope you do. A fairy tale is just a story. A fable is a story with a moral to it, you know, like Aesop's fables and all that. And so these fables and endless genealogies, they were spending all their time with this. And uh, why? Well, Paul told Timothy, it's because they want to be seen. They want to be known as teachers of the law. They want people to respect them. And so they get caught up in all these endless genealogies and all these fables. And while the story might have a good moral to it, it it doesn't help them grow in the scriptures. They they don't even understand what they're speaking, Paul says. I think he's kind of revealing some frustration with these false teachers that Timothy's having to deal with. So Jesus is not saying that the law is bad. No, the law has its place. The law is good. And Paul was masterful at using the law. And friend, if you're a disciple of Christ, let me encourage you. If you don't know how to uh, get people into the law of God in your witnessing, you're missing a vital facet of your ability to lead people to Christ. Why do we say that? Because they have to get lost before they can get saved. They have to understand they violated the very law of God before they realize that Jesus Christ has died to take care of all of that and that they can stand before him with forgiveness and redemption. So the law is crucial. The law is good. It's our schoolmaster points us to Christ. He says, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, by the ancients, thou shalt not kill. So he goes right to that commandment. There are six of these that he draws out. You can't go to the Ten Commandments, you know, that's posted maybe on the church wall or posted on this placard and find everything he references here. Don't expect to go down the list and just check them off like that. But they are scattered throughout Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus. You will find direct reference to every one of these six that he refers to. You can see, uh, let me see, I think my Cambridge uh, breaks it down this way. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty easy to see for the most of them. Uh, The one that you might need to look for is in verse 31. It has been said. There's no paragraph break there. Uh, I think that one. So when you look at it, it has been said. That's the key indicator for movement. That's how I've broken down each each of these points. And through this, there's six areas of the law that Jesus will expound. And he says, you've heard it has been said, but I say. He's not destroying. He's saying, let me tell you how God sees things. This is how man has been operating. This is how God sees it. This is the letter of the law, and they think they're okay, but God sees what's really going on on the inside. He deals with anger. He deals with lust. He deals with divorce. Those are the first three. Now, I've put those under the category heading of how a disciple has to deal with his passions, his or her passions. Anger, that's on the inside, the heart. Then you have lust, that's on the inside and the heart and mind. And you have divorce, 
Uh, that also uh, points to adultery. By the time he's done with it, just a couple of verses, because he's going to expound on that later in Matthew chapter number 19. I, I think he doesn't really dwell on it here, so it's one of the shortest, uh, shortest law portions that he refers to. But then after that, he goes into other relationships, uh, our relationship in our worship, and our relationship in, in, our, in, our, in our oaths and contracts, and then uh, in giving and charity and works and all of these things. Those are the three. And I put those broadly under the heading of dealing with your promises. Promises to God, promises to other people, promises that will affect how a disciple lives in this world. So do you see... Are you with me? We're looking at how a disciple is to operate within his community, his sphere of influence. Now, when we came through the Beatitudes, we pointed out that the first four of those eight, if you take eight, as I do, the first four of those eight Beatitudes dealt with the internal. In other words, he got us right this way, and then the latter ones focused on getting right this way. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, I see that manifested here in what he's talking about in, in retribution and, and not seeking retaliation. Also, blessed are the meek. So look for those Beatitudes, and you'll find them in his expounding of the law. He deals with the inside first, and then the external, the walk. As you study these verses, 21 to 48, one thing that I found in my observations was that there's a pattern of three. Now, when we studied the Beatitudes, we also saw some similar patterns, didn't we? So Jesus is going to give what I've called the letter of the law. He's going to expound the spirit of the law. And then he's going to tell us how to walk that law. That makes sense. You'll find those facets in every one of these six. You've heard that it has been said by them of old time. Or it has been said. That's the letter of the law. Then he's going to go on to explain the spirit of the law. But I say unto you, it's not about the external. It's about what's happening inside. That's where God sees it. That's where it all begins. That's where you need to nip it in the bud. Nip it, nip it, nip it in the bud, Barney. Okay. You'll get that in a minute. Maybe not if you don't remember that show. But taking you back to Mayberry. All right, just give me a hint where we're going. Uh, nip it in the bud. Okay. Deal with it in the heart before it manifests itself outside. As a parent, I, get, I can't tell you how many times I see this. You know, This is a mark of immaturity. And uh, not just with my own children, but I observe it with other families too. And, and if you've observed children any length of time, you know how immature children can be sometimes. And if they would have just dealt with it in here personally before they started working externally, how much could be avoided? Get right in here, and then you'll have a better chance of getting right out here. It doesn't always work, because Paul said, as much as life and you live peaceably with all men, you can't exactly you know, change how other people are going to respond and, and act, but you can deal with how you respond to situations on the inside. As we look at how the disciple is to operate within his community, I've summarized it and written it at the top of your notes, a protected heart means a projected testimony, which will lead to a presented gospel. Now think that through. Solomon encouraged his readers in the book of Proverbs, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are all the issues of life. Solomon would probably have done well to read his own words later in life, right? Well, don't throw any rocks at him. Think about your own life before you, 
you start saying he failed, well, I can't, I can't cast the first stone at that one, I'm sorry. And so, if we protect our heart, then it will allow us to project our testimony for Christ. Right? We're supposed to shine. We're supposed to be salts and light. And as we do that, it will open doors for us to present the gospel and lead people to our Father in Heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, the Great King. Now, that's in our text as well. Because our Great King has a city, and that's a direct reference to one of the Psalms. Notice how a disciple, first off, needs to deal with his passion. Now, I want you to remember this, so I, I hope that I've chosen some things that will cause you to hang on to them. Don't be literal on me here. Just take it for what I mean it for, and I'm sure I'll be misunderstood. <laughs> so, with that said, we deal with our passion. Let's go over to the people's court. As we are dealing with others in the people's court, we need to be an advocate for, advocate for Jesus Christ in the people's court. What do I mean by that? The backdrop, and this is crucial. If you don't hear anything else I say about this portion and this Sermon on the Mount, you need to understand this. Because if you do not, you will make the same mistake that so many others have made in wresting these verses from their context and making them say whatever you want to say. Oh, pastor, we're more careful. Than, okay, I get calls quite frequently. And I've never had one directly quote the verse to me, but in essence, when I have to tell someone no because they're not willing to fill out an application for benevolence assistance, on the phone, you know, we get calls to the church, can you help, we need to pay rent, we need money, we need this, you know. Okay, people have hard times, I understand that. We have a process, and we want to help people, but we also don't want to just take God's people's money and just, you know, waste it with somebody that's going to go buy something we wouldn't approve of, or do more damage to their life, or not give it to the people we intended to go to. So we have to have protections in place, okay? Administratively, we have to do that. So we can't just give money. But this is a passage that people will go to, and they will turn you into a doormat faster than anything. And as a follower of Christ, you hear me well, you are never called on by Jesus to simply be somebody's doormat for them to wipe their feet on you so that you can be a Christian. Please, don't misunderstand him. In every context, what does he reference? He's referencing a legal situation. So this is in the context of law. This is in the context of public purview. How are you, as a disciple of Christ, to act and to be around others when the name of Jesus Christ is at stake to the world. This fits the context, remember, because didn't he already warn his disciples that they would take them and they would bring them before kings and before rulers and before authorities and they would have to give an account and, uh, and they would be persecuted for righteousness' sake, they would be persecuted for his sake, and this is nothing new because they've done it from ages past. Anyone that stood up with a message, thus saith the Lord, has had to stand on the carpet and give an account for that message. And when it's not received, you wind up with a response, unlike Micah, it's not like Micah, Micah actually made a difference in, in the people, and it's not like it works out with Jonah every time, you know, Nineveh gets saved, those are wonderful stories. Sometimes you wind up in a cistern, like Jeremiah. 
Sometimes you wind up bludgeoned by your own brother and your blood cries from the ground like Abel. Sometimes, all the way from Abel to Zechariah. And so as we are representing Christ, as ambassadors for Christ, so you understand the next person that comes and knocks on your door, unless they have a legal quarrel with you, and I hope that they, I hope that they don't, but unless they have a legal quarrel with you, you're not within the context here, so don't let them wrestle you and say, you've got to give, you've got to turn the other cheek, you've got to give me your coat too. If you feel led of the Holy Spirit to do that, I'm not telling you to not do that. I'm just saying, don't apply this to speak to that need. You can be led and you can give out of the abundance of your heart. Jesus is going to cover that. And if you feel led to give, then, then give, because you never know. You never know. This church has helped uh, assist people with benevolence that, I mean, frankly, you know, we went through all the process. We did it all as right as we could. Interviewed with them, got to know them, and, and they'll come, you know, for the services that they're required to come to, and then we never see them again. We don't really know what they did with the money. But does that mean that we should stop giving? No. It, sh it doesn't mean that. It means we take every precaution that we can, and then we give it to God and trust Him that He's going to take it and do something with it that we don't even know about. We're sowing and casting our bread on the waters by faith in some of those circumstances. So, back to the context. As we are advocating for Christ, Jesus is, in essence, telling us when you're in the court of the people, when you're dealing with others, the people's court. Now, I almost wanted to call this family court because he begins by saying, if you're angry with who? Aha, you do know what he's talking about. We never get angry at our brothers or sisters. <laughs> never. I don't. <laughs> I'm an job. <laughs> yeah, I did have step siblings that I got quite frustrated with sometimes. But so we're talking about family matters. All right, you see. Well, maybe you haven't seen it. You know, the people's court, Judge Judy, whatever you want to think of. So-and-so comes, and they're airing out everything, and they're saying, you know, this. And then I need them to take care of this. And usually it's some small sum. Sometimes it's not. But, you know, the judge has to sit and wade through all the garbage and then get to the point of it and say, okay, now you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to get right. How many of those people are so angry, by the time they get to Judge Judy, they can't even talk to each other, and they have to have a mediator? Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, there should be no place in your life for that. Deal with your anger. Now he says, you've heard that it has been said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Now that's a word, if you go back to the Hebrew, that literally means murder. So there's an intent to kill there. We're not talking about someone who is commissioned by their country to take up arms and defend or go to protect honor and rights and those kind of things. It's, that's totally different. Uh, the Anabaptists have gone uh, gone off the rails in the pacifism area. Others have too, not just them. But that's not how we take these uh, these issues. Jesus is saying, you've heard that hath been said, thou shalt not kill. But let me expound that a little bit deeper. Just because you don't manifest that externally and take action against someone and actually take their life that doesn't belong to you, doesn't mean you haven't already violated the spirit of that law in God's court. Because God sees what goes on on the inside. And this is the same argument he's going to use for adultery and lust. And that's where we go to the private court. So when we're dealing with 
with the people's court, with family issues, uh, brothers and sisters, those kind of things, to be angry without a cause. Now, he uses some words here that I don't know if I, I really understand the, the culture behind them. Uh, raka, uh, fool, thou fool, uh, comes from, you know, basically calling somebody a moron, empty-headed. Uh, so this was, a, this was a huge insult. So, again... I don't pretend to know exactly how people would take the word Raqqa in their day. By the way, if you ever have the opportunity to be a foreign translator for anyone, please be careful in repeating any words that you don't understand because you have no idea when you say it in that language the kind of force it's going to have. I think we're dealing with an issue here going from the English into the original language and the Jewish culture of the day. Hebrew people especially... They put great significance to someone's name. Your name meant something. And we do that, you know, kind of, but nothing like what they did. They put significance to the name. So when you are attacking someone's name, you're attacking their character, you're attacking who they are, it's as good as going after the person themselves. And this is escalating, okay? If you say Raka, uh, then, then you're in danger of, of the council. If you do another thing... It, it progresses. So it begins with the council, and then it begins, then it moves on to the Sanhedrin, which would be like the Supreme Court, and then the Court of Heaven, where God will deal with the matter. And he references the fires of hell multiple times here. Gehenna is a place on the west side of Jerusalem where in Jesus' day they would burn all the rubbish, and it was a perpetual fire. All the garbage would go there to be burned right outside of Jerusalem. That's the idea here. All this, God's going to burn it off. And these are the fires that you'll have to go through if you don't deal with it now. Whatsoever you bind here will be bound there. Whatever you loose here will be loosed there. And so as Jesus is teaching this, let's not miss what he's saying. Your words matter. Because your words come from your heart. And if you get the heart matter settled before you ever open your mouth, you can head off a lot of pain and a lot of heartache. Deal with the anger inside. Don't let it escalate, because the moment you start opening your mouth, that becomes verbal abuse. And then when you move from verbal abuse, it's not long before you say something that's going to trigger the other person, and they will murder you. If you don't murder them, they'll murder you. That's the logical outcome. We get it, right? We don't need to be a dead horse. Okay, Pastor, I understand. Now, think about your testimony for Christ. We have a case in Purview right here in Colorado that, I mean, we need to pray for Mr. Phillips. Pray for him. Because this would apply in his context. And that man has, as far as I've read and studied about him, he's bent over backwards. That man, I think, really has turned the other. He's given so much. He's paid the price. And yet he's still being, being pursued because he's, he's in there crosshair. And there's a whole agenda, work, agenda working out. I get that. But I'll tell you, that man has had such a testimony for Christ across this nation and around the world. He has. And he's, he's standing up. And we need to pray for him and others like him. Uh, Baronel, you might follow some of the other cases. You know, the, the florists, the bakers. There, there's something happening, okay? There is an agenda working. They're, they're attacking our freedoms. And we're watching them be, being eroded from the inside out. They're destroying us from the inside out. And before long, we're going to be slaves in our own country. 
not able to exercise our freedom to worship Christ openly, be an advocate for Christ in the, in the areas of family. Agree with thine adversary quickly. Notice he says that here. You know, after he talks about thou fool um, being in danger of the hellfire, he talks about bringing your gift to the altar and remembering that your brother hath ought against thee. He says, leave your gift there, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother. Notice it's the brother that's angry this time, not you. You did something. Jesus says, you're not right with God until you go get right with him. And if you've got to take 150% of the blame, so be it. Get right with them, and then come back and worship God. Otherwise, your worship's not going any further. He goes on to say, agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him. Lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Now, in the, in the manners and customs of the Bible, you'll read this. According to Roman law, if a person had a quarrel that he could not settle privately, ah, we're dealing with context, aren't we? Okay, can't be settled privately. He had the right to order, by Roman law, his adversary to accompany him to the praetor. Come on, we're going to the big boys. You're coming with me. By law, he was, the Roman was required to do that. If he refused, the prosecutor took someone present to witness the saying, and he would go and establish every word and say, May I take you to witness? If the person consented, he offered the tip of his ear, which the prosecutor touched, a form that was observed toward uh, witnesses in some legal ceremonies among the Romans. Then the plaintiff might drag the defendant to court by force in any way, even by the neck. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, Agree, whilst thou art in the way, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast in the, by the nape of the neck you're coming with me, because we're going to get this settled. You see, deal with it before it gets there. Jesus says, just nip it in the bud. Deal with it in the heart. Get right before it ever escalates. Why? Again, back to the fact that if we don't operate internally the way we should and live right before God, how can we expect a lost and dying world to ever see God in us? Because we're not treating them like God would treat them. You drag the name of Jesus Christ through the mud when you don't handle it the way that he's saying here. Agree quickly while you're in the way with him. And so... Worthless persons such as thieves and robbers might be dragged before the judge without the formality of calling a witness. If on the way to the judge the difficulty was settled, no further legal steps were taken. That's it. Okay. All right, I see where this is going. Stop it right there. Whatever has to happen, make the concession. Let go of your pride. Because that might land somebody in hell. Your pride might be what bars them from eternal life. Because they never see God in you. But think about the other, the other way it could work out. You agree with them, and the truth eventually eats on them, and they know that you didn't do everything they were dragging you out for, and they treated you above and beyond what they ever really should have. And at night, if their conscience bothers, if their conscience bothers them at all, they just might come to God and say, I need to get right with you. They just might glorify your Father in heaven. They might give glory to God. They just might find conversion. So Jesus is referred to that Roman custom here, I think, in some ways. And he's quite clear about at least this fact. And 
this is all I'm going to have time to, to make it through today. And we'll pick up the next one when we come back next time. But let's close with this thought. It is abundantly clear that you cannot, you cannot at all be right with God until we are right with one another. I'm preaching to the choir. I have to be introspective on this and think about my own life. Lord, is there anybody? So when when I go through a, a season in my life where I feel like maybe my prayers aren't getting answered or God might be a million miles away, something of that nature, one of the first places I'll go is to do a survey and say, is there anybody that might be mad at me that, that I know about? I know I make a lot of people mad that I probably don't even know that I made bad. And if they're mad at me because of something I did, shame on me. But if it's just the offense of the cross, then I'm going to let God handle that. But if I've, if I've done something or said something that has brought pain or heartache to somebody else, and then I'm coming and trying to worship God, I can't expect Him to receive that until I go and make amends. Why? Because that just might be the thing that wins them over to the Lord. Just might be. We can't be right with God until we're right with each other. We can't hope for forgiveness until we've confessed our own sin. Not only to God, but sometimes, when necessary, to the other that's offended. I'm sorry. How about you apologize and spell out what it is that you did to offend them? And then reassure them that you're never, ever, ever, as much as lies in you, ever going to do that again. And give them some kind of token of assurance that you know what they feel and you're hurting the way they hurt. That doesn't mean you're never going to fall again, but it means you're going to think twice the next time. And you're not going to make the same mistake if you can help it. Give them some kind of fruit, meat for repentance. Show them that you've changed your mind about it. I'm sorry. You're sorry you got caught. Get right with others. And do this until we've done our best to remove all the practical consequences of it, as that would work out, agree quickly while you're in the way. And uh, sometimes, you know, we wonder why our prayers seem that, like there's a brick wall between us and God. Well, maybe it might be that, that we're the ones that have put up that barrier because we're not willing to humble ourselves and get right with somebody else. Being at variance with our neighbors, with our family, with, with others that are close to us, that's where we've been dealing and let's not drag the name of Christ through the mud. Have we wronged someone? Have we done nothing to put it to right? Lord, help us to have discernment. Now, I don't expect us to know every minutia of things that we've said or done that have been hurtful. And sometimes we, we might need someone to remind us. And that's okay. Can we have the humility to receive criticism when it's constructive? Not just tearing people down to tear them down, but, but to come to them and approach them humbly. And try to gain their ear. Matthew 18 walks through how to do that as, as followers of Christ. Go to them individually and say, can I just share something with you? And if they hear you, you've, you've won them. You've, the relationship is repaired. Nothing further needs to happen. But this is so important that we protect the testimony of Christ. Think about how this fits with the larger aspect of the so-called Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Are you living that blessedness? Are you prepared for the variances that would come and those that would stand up and have a problem with you trying to stand for righteousness? When the conflict occurs, how are you going to handle it? When it's a conflict 
among your family, you need to be the first one to make sure you deal inside with your own anger because there are going to be things that hit you and you're not going to be able to change it. You're not going to be able to stop it. But Paul says, let not the sun go down upon thy wrath. Deal with it quickly, Jesus said. Right there in that moment, you turn it over to God. You stop. You turn it over to Him. You think and you say, Lord, what do you want me to praise you for? What do you want me to thank you for? That's some helpful stuff to work through when you have these moments and the trigger happens because Paul says you will be angry. Things are going to happen and passively you're going to be the recipient of something that triggers that anger and that just means you're not a robot. It means that God created you that way to, to have a response. If you didn't get angry about it, I'd wonder if you even cared at all. So be angry and sin not. Deal with it inside. Take that to God and say, Lord, what's the way forward in this? How do I get this fixed? Not just fuming and blowing off the top and, and, and or steam kettle cooking until everything pops. No, deal with it and say, Lord, you triggered this and something triggered this in me to, to get me to you. How do I move forward? How do I glorify Christ in this situation? Because we're at variance, there's a conflict. And if we don't get right, Jesus Christ's name is going to be tarnished. I'm going to lose my testimony. And I'm going to lose the ability to maybe help somebody find Christ. It's that vital. Eternity hinges on how you deal with the fact that Jesus said, You've heard, don't kill. I tell you. If you're angry without a cause, and if you're not doing things biblically and godly, there's a, there's a greater price to pay. And eternity hangs in the balance. Let this sink in.